All right, picking up where we left off. And then he wished he hadn't. Basil was standing very close to him and smiling. Measle had never seen Basil smile before. He hoped he never would again. It was ghastly. Usually, when people smile, the skin at the corner of their eyes wrinkles at the same time, which makes them look friendly. Basil's eyes didn't wrinkle at all. They stayed exactly the same as always, big and round and fishy and very, very cold. His thin, pale lips were stretched wide, revealing a row of long yellow teeth. The teeth at the sides of his mouth were even longer, and they came to a sharp point. For a moment, Measle wondered if Basil might be a vampire. But surely vampires only had one set of pointed teeth, one on each side. Basil had three pointed teeth on each side, which made him look a bit like an alligator. So, we like playing with Basil's trains, do we? Measles swallowed hard. He'd never been so frightened in his life. I'm I'm sorry, Mr. Tramplebone, sir, he managed to stammer. Sorry? I, I didn't mean to crash them. Really, I did it. Crash? There has been no crash, boy. Look for yourself. Measle did as he was told. He swiveled around and stared at the train set. It was true. There was no sign of a crash. In fact, the section of track where the two trains should have been lying as Measle imagined they would be in a tangled pile of wreckage, was empty. Measle looked in wonder, and he saw that the monster locomotive was back in its siding, and the little green freight train was back at its starting point, right over there on the far side of the huge table. The humming sound of the electricity was gone, and all was quiet and peaceful and in its right and proper place. Mind you, said Basil, his voice a whisper, very close to Measle's ears. Mind you, there would have been a crash, a very nasty crash, had I not arrived in the nick of time. And do I, and do you know how I arrived in the nick of time, Measle? N- no, sir. Then I shall tell you. I arrived in the nick of time because halfway to the bank, I realized that today is Sunday. Sunday, Measle. And you know what Sunday means, don't you, Measle? N- no, sir. Sunday means that the bank's are closed, Measle, including our bank, Measle. So it follows that we never had a call from the man at the bank this morning, doesn't it, Measle? Yes, sir. It follows that you made the story up, doesn't it, Measle? Yes, sir. 
You lied to me, didn't you, Measle? You told me a falsehood, and you tampered with the telephone, didn't you, Measle? I'm really, really sorry, Mr. Tramplebone, sir. Basil patted Measle gently on his shoulder, and Measle could feel the cold of Basil's fingers through the thin material of his shirt. Of course, you're sorry, whispered Basil. A quite soon, you're going to be even sorrier. A bone-chilling coldness flooded through Measle's body, and at the same time he could feel beads of sweat oozing on his, out on his face. He took a deep, shuddering breath. What are you going to do? Ah, there's the question. What am I going to do? Well, Measle, I have always believed that the punishment should fit the crime. Do you believe that, Measle? I s- s- suppose so, sir. You suppose so? Good. I suppose so, too. Very well. The punishment for playing with my train set without my permission is that you will play in my train set with my full permission for the re- rest of your life. Well, what could that mean? P- play with your. Oops, sorry, wrong voice. P- p- play with your train set, sir? stammered Measle. No, boy, you must try and listen when people talk to you. Not play with my train set. Play in my train set. Forever and ever and ever. Now sit perfectly still and you won't get hurt. And then Basil leaned very close to Measle and breathed softly into Measle's face. Measle tried hard not to, but he screwed up his face as though he'd just eaten a lemon. Basil's breath was foul. It smelled of dead fish and old mattresses and the insides of ancient sneakers. Measle tried to lean away from the stench, but Basil kept on breathing at him until it seemed impossible to Measle that such a thin chest could contain so much air. Even when Measle felt sure that Basil couldn't possibly breathe out any more without taking a breath in, Basil simply went on producing the soft, disgusting breeze and blowing it gently into Measle's face. Measle tried to hold his breath so he wouldn't have to smell it, but eventually he was forced to take a great gulp of air. (gasps) If anything, the smell was worse, and Basil seemed to be getting bigger. The more he breathed out, the bigger Basil seemed to grow. Now he was towering over Measle, his head the size of a bus, but that was impossible, surely. A bus would never fit in the attic, and for a moment, Measle dragged his eyes away from Basil's staring goldfish eyes and looked about him. Basil wasn't getting bigger. Measle was getting smaller.
Already, the stool on which he'd been sitting stretched away on either side of him, as if it wasn't a stool at all, but more like a broad table. And now his feet no longer dangled a few inches from the floor. Now the floor was a long, long way down, and Measle appeared to be sitting on the edge of a high cliff, looking down at the drop that, if he fell, would certainly kill him. Measle shuddered and scrambled back from the edge of the stool, and still Basil went on breathing over him. And now the breeze was becoming a wind, and now it was a hurricane which forced Measle to fall back. So that he was trying, he was lying face upward on the flat wooden surface of the stool. He glanced to one side, trying to turn his face away from the dreadful smell, and he saw that the edge of the stool seemed to be far, far away. And then the hurricane stopped. Measle turned his head and stared up at Basil in horror. Basil was vast. Tall as a mountain, a tall mountain of black, topped by a stark whiteness of, of his face, so that it looked to Measle like he was like the snow capped peak of Mount Everest. There now, said Basil, his voice a distant boom. We've cut you down to size, haven't we, Measle? Oh, yes, I should have done this years ago. But we had to keep up appearances, didn't we? Oh, yes. But now, well, we don't really need you anymore, do we? You see, two weeks ago, our bank appointed a new bank manager. Oh, yes. And our new bank manager, Mr. Griswold Gristle, is one of us. Well... One of me, I should say, and a very, very friendly fellow indeed, at least to me. And we had a delicious conversation at the beginning of last week, Mr. Gristle and I. And, well, the upshot of it all was that you were far too young to have any money. So all of your lovely money is now... In my control, Measle. It's mine, mine, mine. So you see, my dear boy, you are now superfluous to requirements. Measle felt like crying, but didn't. Measle had finished with crying. He had done a lot of it when he was younger, but he hadn't, but it hadn't changed a thing. So one day, he simply stopped crying and hadn't cried since. Instead, he lay quite still, waiting to see what Basil would do next. Basil said, Stay there, Measle. Don't move a muscle. Don't even blink, dear boy. Measle thought that it was, unne uh, was an unnecessary thing to say. <laughs> Where would he go? He was lying flat on a wooden plane. Surrounded on all sides by a long, distant drop to the floor far beneath him, he watched as Basil moved away to the other side of the attic. A moment later, he was back, looming huge over Measle. In his enormous right hand, 
It was the size of a house. He was holding something bright and silvery. The hand came slowly down toward Measle, and Measle saw that the bright silvery object was a pair of tweezers, the same tweezers that Basil had used when he was performing some particularly delicate task for his new train set, like putting a new tree in a place or rearranging the chips of the coal in the coal yard. Now, to Measle, the tweezers looked gigantic. Each leg of the instrument was as long as an oar, and the points were coming steadily toward him. Lie quite still, Measle, boomed Basil. This won't hurt if you lie quite still. Measle did as he was told. He leaned, sorry, he learned never to argue with Basil. Besides, Basil never lied about anything. It was the only good thing you could say about him. Of course, the truth from Basil was never a pleasant truth, but it was always truth. If Basil said that poisonous blue frogs would fall from the black cloud that hung permanently over the gloomy house, you could be pretty sure that before the day was out, the drains and the gutters would be full of very poisonous blue frogs. If Basil said it wouldn't hurt, then it wouldn't hurt. It didn't hurt, but it was unpleasant all the same. He's talking about when Basil picks him up with the tweezers. Measle watched the ends of the tweezers touch the front of his shirt. He felt the ends of the tweezers pinch together a wad of the material, then felt a pulling sensation as he was gently lifted up by his collar. Up and up he went, until the top of the stool was far beneath him and the attic floor even farther. Measle kept very still. He knew that if he struggled... There was a good chance that his old shirt would split and that he'd drop away and falling from the great height would certainly kill him. So he froze like a statue, his eyes wide open, praying that the collar of his shirt would hold. Basil swung his enormous arm and Measle saw the great tabletop glide beneath him, the forest, the little wooden cabins, the railroad tracks. The sad gray train yards with their sad gray stations. And finally, the mound of coal chips in its own little fenced-in yard. Measle felt himself going down. The ground seemed to rush toward him, and he closed his eyes, expecting to feel a sickening crunch as his body hit. But at the last moment, he suddenly slowed down, and he opened his eyes wide enough to see that he was about to be deposited right in the middle of the whole keep, coal heap. Basil placed him carefully on the very top of the mound and then opened the tweezers. The strain on Measle's shirt collar was released. You always were such a dirty boy, said Basil, his voice rumbling like a distant thunderstorm. Now you're even dirtier. Why are you doing this? shouted Measle. What was that? A little squeak from a dirty little mouse? You'll have to speak up, Measle. Your voice is so tiny now. I can't hear you at all. Measle struggled to his feet, glaring up 
at the black mountain that was Basil. Listen, I'm sorry I played with the train set, he yelled as loudly as he could. I'll never do it again. Ah, that's better. I can just about hear you now. Basil lowered his huge head until his white face seemed to fill the whole sky. Not play with my train set ever again? But Measle, my dear boy, you're welcome to play in it. Oh, Okay, I apologize that that last one ended so abruptly. Um, I had a little technical difficulty, so I'm going to pick up right where I left off. I'm going to reread a few uh, sentences um, just so you can refresh your memory. Um, Measle is begging for forgiveness, saying that he'll never play with the train again. And here's Basil. Not play with my train set ever again, but Measle, my dear boy. You're welcome to it. Play in it as long as you like. Play in it forever. There's so much to do and so many things to see. Forests to explore. Houses to live in. People to talk to. Of course, I'm afraid they won't talk back because they can't. They're only made of plastic. But at least they won't interrupt you when you tell them your life's story, will they? I do so hate it when people interrupt. Don't you? He's mad, thought Measle. And then, because the thought was so strong, Measle raised his head and shouted, You're mad! Basil smiled his terrible smile, revealing all six pointed yellow teeth. Well, of course I am, Measle, and how very sweet of you to say so. After that lovely compliment, I'm almost tempted to let you go. <laughs> but no, I think not. If I did, I wouldn't be mad, would I? And we can't have that now, can we? You see, being mad is such enormous Fun. Enjoy yourself, young Measle. I'm going to leave you now, but I shall be back later to see how you're getting along. Basil turned away, and then he paused and turned back again. Oh, one more thing, Measle. Don't worry about food and drink. You will not starve. If you look carefully, you'll find something to eat. Something very tasty, I promise. Bye-bye now. Basil moved swiftly away toward the attic door, and Measle felt a sudden wind as a great mass of air rushed to fill the space that Basil had left behind. He heard the attic door close, and a deep silence fill the room. Measle felt as alone as he'd ever felt in his life. Then he heard the attic door open again, and Basil's hissing whisper, 
Oh, measle, <laughs> just one more thing. A tiny word of warning. Stay undercover at night. It's not safe during hours of darkness. The long hours of darkness. Not for a little mouse-like creature such as you. Hide at night, measle. Hide well. Hide from the thing in the rafters, measle. There was a low sound. For a moment, Measle couldn't imagine what it might be. Then he realized it was Basil laughing. The attic door closed again and the silence returned. Chapter 3, The Cure. So I'm wondering, what needs to be cured? We know now that Measle was shrunken down to a little teeny weeny person like a plastic little figurine but he's probably very small like maybe an inch tall so now he's in the train set let's see what there might need to be a cure for here we go measles sat very still on the top of the coal pile for a long time he hardly dared to breathe because what Basil had said confirmed his worst fears. There was something up there in the rafters of the attic, something dreadful, something that would do him harm, something he must avoid at all costs, something. After a while, Measles' paralyzed brain started to work again. Basil had said that the danger came during the long hours of darkness, which of course meant at nighttime. Basil never lied, which meant that Measle was safe during the day. It was still daylight. There, at the far end of the long room, was a distant window with its grimy, broken panes of glass. So a pane of glass is the glass that's in the window, the piece of glass and it's broken. Can you picture a broken window? And Measle could see that while the sun wasn't shining outside, because it never shone over that grim, dark house, it was certainly out there somewhere, hidden behind the dismal black cloud, but still providing enough light to the outside world to show that it existed. Measle didn't have a watch, so he had no idea what time it was. He guessed it was about mid-afternoon. If Basil was telling the truth, and in Measle's experience, he always did, Measle was safe from the something for several hours to come. He glanced quickly up toward the ceiling just to check that there was no unspeakable horror there, poised to swoop down on him. Its talons, or its beak, or its fangs, or its tentacles, or whatever terrifying features it possessed, stretched out to grab him. It was like looking up at a stormy sky. He was so tiny now that the ceiling was so very far away that the distant rafters were almost lost in the gloom. He peered upward, scanning the darkness. There was nothing up there, at least nothing he could see. Feeling far from safe, but just safe enough to make a move off the coal pile, he inched himself down the side of the mound until he arrived on the ground below. Through his fear, Measle couldn't help being amazed at the realism of his surroundings. 
the fence encircling the coal yard, like the coal heap itself with its actual lumps of coal, looked perfect in every detail. The wooden planks even had little knot holes in them, and the whole thing was covered with a thin layer of coal dust, just as it would if the fence were full size. It was a drab and dirty place, and Measle decided that anywhere else on the huge table was probably going to be an improvement. So he headed for a gap in the fence, and a moment later found himself in the heart of the rail yards. So a rail yard is different tracks where different um, locomotives and um, train cars are parked. So it's kind of like a parking lot for trains but it's called a rail yard. There were two small freight engines standing next to each other. One had no wagons behind it. The other had three empty coal trucks linked to its tender. Both were filthy, covered with the kind of black grime you would expect to see on locomotives that were stationed near the coal yard. Measle gave them no more than a glance. He'd known that they were there having seen them only minutes before, when he was still full size. Instead, he picked his way across the rail yard, the railroad tracks, heading for the miniature town beyond them. The ground was lumpy and uneven, covered with a sort of rubbish you might expect in an old rail yard. Bits of twisted metal, rot, rotting wooden crates, rusting machine parts, and Measle had to walk carefully in order not to trip over anything. At last, he reached the edge of the rail yard. There was a building here, a long, low brick building with a slate roof. It was very realistic, and Measle stopped for a moment to admire it. The bricks seemed old, and several slates were missing from the roof. The glass in most of the windows was cracked or broken and the whole building looked shabby and neglected. Measle picked his way toward it. There was a door hanging ajar, that means open, on sagging hinges, and Measle cautiously poked his head inside and looked around. The building was empty. There was no furniture, no pictures, no rubbish, no nothing, simply the plain brick walls and a bare, rather new-looking wooden floor. Measle looked more closely at the floor. It was plywood, and it looked very much like the same kind of plywood that the huge table was made of. Measle knew that the table was made, what the table was made of, because once, when he and Basil were in the attic, the vibration of a passing train had caused a pine tree to fall off the edge of the table and down onto the floor. Basil had told Measle to pick it up. Measle had bent down and found the tree, and for a moment had lingered there, looking up at the underside of the table. He saw that it was supported on eight rows of wooden trusses, and that the tabletop itself was made of many sheets of smooth white birch plywood, which rested securely on its trestles. The floor of the shabby building in which he now stood looked a lot like it was made from the same birch plywood. In that moment, Measle learned something. Basil only cared about what you could see. If it was visible from above, 
Everything about the train set was correct, down to the smallest detail. If it wasn't visible from above, Basil didn't care about it. Measel tucked this bit of information away in his brain and walked quickly through the empty building to another door on the far side of the bare room. He pushed it open and found himself, as he knew he would, in a street of small, sooty houses. At the far end of the street, which Measel knew was quite near the edge of the great table, stood a pair of plastic figures. Measel remembered them. One was the man in the blue coat and the yellow helmet, sitting on the side of the pit, holding the electrical cables. You might want to draw him in your notebook to keep track of the characters. So remember, that was one the man in the blue coat with the yellow helmet, sitting on the side of the hole in the pavement, the pit, holding the electrical cables. The other figure directly behind him was the man with the bucket of water. Measle decided to take a closer look, so he walked quickly down the street toward them. As he got nearer, he noticed that there was a considerable difference between the two plastic figures. At close range, the man with the bucket of water was quite crudely modeled. His paintwork was rough, and the seam where his two halves had been joined together in the factory was exactly plain to see, running down the middle of his face and down his chest. The man with the yellow helmet was something else entirely. He, too, was obviously made of plastic, but his hair and clothes and even the lines of age on his face and the graying hair poking out from under the yellow helmet looked amazingly realistic. There was no seam running down his body either. Measle wondered if perhaps Basil hadn't bought him from one of his model railway catalogs, but had actually made him himself. If so, well, it was a brilliant piece of craftsmanship. There was even a battered steel toolbox by the man's side. Ooh, be sure to include that in your picture. Something Measle had never noticed before. Beyond the two figures was the edge of the table, and near the edge there was a small scattering of yellow objects and a broad puddle of pink liquid. For a moment, Measle couldn't imagine what they could be. Then he realized what they were. Glazed donut crumbs and spilled pink lemonade left there by Basil after one of his binges. Measle suddenly felt hungry. His meager lunch seemed a long time ago, and it hadn't been much to speak of anyway. He'd always longed for a taste of Basil's glazed donuts and a sip of Basil's pink lemonade. And now, at last, he could eat and drink his fill of them. Perhaps, he thought, there was something to be said for being half an inch tall. Okay, so now we know he's a half inch tall. Back when he was full size, what lay before him would have been nothing but a few crumbs and a single drop. But now, in light of his miniature state, it was a feast that could last him several days. Obviously, that was what Basil had meant when he said that Basil would... Basil... Measle, sorry... <laughs>
Okay, obviously, that was what Basil had meant when he said that Measle would find plenty to eat and drink. Well, he found it. Measle moved past the still, silent figures of the two men, and when he reached the scattered donut crumbs, he bent down and picked up the biggest crumb and sniffed it. Yes, it was certainly donut. He opened his mouth. Nurr! The sound, very quiet and muffled, had come from behind him. Measle turned quickly. Apart from the two plastic men, the street was empty. Measle shook his head. He must have imagined it. He opened his mouth again. Nurr! This time, Measle knew he hadn't imagined it. The sound came from close by, right where the figures of the men were placed. Was it possible that one of them was trying to say something to him? Measle stared hard at the figures and slowly raised the donut crumb to his mouth. No, no, no! It was the man with the yellow helmet. His mouth had moved, at least one small corner of it. It had opened just wide enough for the sound to come out. There was no question about it. The voice had come from the plastic man, and he was trying to say something. Measle took a couple of careful steps toward the figure and then stopped. There was something creepy about all of this, and Measle was scared. What did you say? He stammered. The corner of the mouth opened again. On it! What? On it! On it! On ink lemonade! Measle frowned. It sounded as if the man was trying to say, Don't eat donut. Don't drink lemonade. You don't want me to eat this? Measle said, holding up the donut crumb. Right. On eat! On drink! Nutter, nutter, nutter! Why not? And uck, ike, e. That one took a bit of thinking about. A moment later, Measle got it. End up like you. Right. Measle stared at the model. It was a very strange being. It was very strange being told not to do something by a plastic man. In fact, it was so strange that Measle forgot his fear and took two steps closer. He peered up at the man's face. There was no question about it. While amazingly realistic, he was still made entirely of plastic, except perhaps for the last for that small corner of his mouth. The rest of his face was smooth and shiny. The eyes stared blankly off into the distance, but the corner of the mouth looked a little different. There seemed to be something human about it, something alive. How can you talk? You're a plastic model, aren't you? Osley, just a little it left now. You mean you're alive? Not for much longer. Soon I'll eat all plastic. Soon you'll be all plastic? Yes. But how? Why? The donuts, the lemonade, poison. 
<gasps> the donuts and the lemonade are poison? Right. They turn you into plastic. Measle looked about him. But there's nothing else I'll eat. I'll starve to death. Utter eating plastic. Measle felt all hope drain from him. He knew he could probably last a few days, but eventually he would become so weak for want of food and water that he'd no longer be able to walk, let alone search for food that wasn't there. He sank slowly to his knees, and as he did so, he felt a pressure against his thigh from something in his pocket. Do you guys remember what was in his pocket? Before he went up to the attic, he reached in and his fingers touched paper. Of course, it was the bag of carrots he'd taken from the refrigerator earlier that day. Measle pulled the bag out of his pocket and looked inside. He counted the carrots, 12 old wrinkled things, some still crusted with the soil they'd grown in. If he was careful, he could make them last maybe six days, but after that, he reached in and took out the cleanest. Who's uh, you got there? Oh, just an old carrot. A uh, carrot? There was a combination of amazement and longing in the man's voice, as if, at first, he couldn't believe what he'd heard. And then, if he had heard it right, he couldn't believe that something so wonderful could be so close to him. Measle looked up at him and said, You want some? There was a pause. Then the man, in, the, in a tone of great sadness, says, I think I can chew it. Oink, oink, oink. Your mouth doesn't work? Right. I could cut it up for you. That is, if you can still swallow. There was another pause, and then Measle heard a gulping sound. <clears throat> I can do that, said the man, suddenly sounding much happier. Good, said Measle. Then he said, um, trouble is, I haven't got a knife. Look in the toolbox. Look in the toolbox. Measles squatted down and opened the battered toolbox. Inside, there was a lift-out tray with lots of small compartments. The compartments held electrical connectors and screws and staples and nails, but nothing to cut a carrot with. Underneath, said the plastic man. Measles lifted out the tray. Down in the bottom of the box was a jumbled pile of tools. Hammers and saws and screwdrivers and drills and chisels. And right at the very bottom was a folding penknife. It had a handle made from a deer horn and a long curved blade. It was the sort of knife Measle had always wanted, but Basil would never let him have one. Basil wouldn't let him have anything of his own, apart from his few dirty old clothes. Measle stared at the knife for a moment, a grin spreading over his face. Oh, said the man. Measle felt himself going red. He nodded. It's yours. Measle went even redder. He hadn't had a present in years. Not since his parents were alive. 
Measel didn't remember when his birthday was, and if he had known, he was sure that Basil would have ignored it. And as for Christmas, thank you very much. You're welcome. Measel wiped a patch of roadway from his, in front of him with the end of his sleeve <clears throat> until it was clean as he could get it. Then he put the carrot down on the spot, opened the penknife, and began to chop the carrot into small pieces. When was the last time you had something to eat? He asked. Oh, no, maybe six years? Onuts and lemonade. Six years? You must be starving. In your plastic, you don't do, you don't starve. Just get very, very hungry. Well, here you are. Measles scooped up the chopped carrot and carefully, piece by piece, pushed the little cubes into the corner of the man's mouth. Good, very good. The man, said the man between swallows, Edder and donuts and lunard. Measle went on feeding the man until all the chopped carrot was gone. Thank you, said the man. Then Measle saw a very odd thing. The man began to move the side of his mouth in and out, in and out. And then suddenly, he was moving his whole mouth. Now the rest of it no longer looked as if it was made of hard plastic. Now it was a truly human mouth. The man opened it and said quite clearly and without any of the muffled sound, Thank you very much, Measle. And then the man's eyebrows shot up to the top of his forehead as if he was surprised at this new sound as Measle was. As, and Measle was very surprised indeed. And Measle said, You can talk properly now. Well, it looks like I can, said the man. And he opened his mouth wide, stretching his jaw muscles and wiggling his tongue. Well, who'd have thought that? Must be the effects of the carrot. The carrot did it? Can't think what else, said the man, suddenly dropping the electric cables, raising his right arm and touching his face with his hand. You can move, shouted Measle. So I can. The man stared at his hand. He flexed his fingers, watching them bend and straighten. Then he lifted his left arm and scratched his ear. I've been dying to do that for six years, he said. Now, let's see about the legs, shall we? Slowly, the man pulled himself to his feet. Then he leaned forward and lifted one foot and took a step. He swayed and grabbed Measle's shoulders. A bit wobbly, but I think I'm getting better. Measle stared at him in wonder. There, standing by his side and leaning heavily on his shoulder, was a living, breathing human man with all trace of plastic gone from his appearance. I can't believe a carrot could do that, he said. It doesn't make any sense. The man looked down at him and smiled. It makes the same kind of sense as donuts and lemonade turning you into plastic, don't you think? It makes as much sense as this whole situation. I mean, look at us. We're half an inch tall. Prisoners on top of a table, stuck in a model railway train set. If that makes sense to anybody, including you, Measle, then I must be pretty peculiar. I suppose I am a bit, said Measle. No, you're not, said the man, patting Measle on the shoulder. 
You're a hero. That's what you are. Look, you brought me back to life, didn't you? That makes you a hero, Measle. How did you know my name? And that's where I'm going to stop on page 53. Enjoyed this chapter with you.